Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a guest that I feel like we talk about. Your name comes up a lot on this podcast. <laughs> and then you and I hosted a series together back when we announced the Gotham Book Prize. But I don't think you've been on in about two years. That's right. I have not. Wow. This is my first time in the bookstore, and it's a terrific venue, terrific site. Wait, I'm going to have to interject right here. You haven't even said his name I'm going yet. To, no, I know, but, but, yeah. but you, I, I think our listeners, I'm curious to know of them. So based on this conversation, including the, the sentence from the, the guest, do people know who it is? Okay, there's no way for the people to respond. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say yes, but for those of you who have not figured it out, my guest today is Howard Wolfson, um, political legend, uh, extremely close friend of both mine and Hugo, and uh, one of the reasons that you come up a lot on this podcast is you and I are part of a text group that began at the beginning of the pandemic with a few other friends of ours, uh, you know, started about politics and kind of now covers pretty much anything and everything. But I will often um, take ideas that I want to talk about the podcast and test them out with you guys, as you can tell sometimes that I'm using as a focus group on the uh, on the text chain. And so therefore, I will say, you know, here's what the political consultant text chain group thought of this. We appreciate the credit. Yeah, uh, it's credit or, or, or negativity, depending on how you look at it. So I had three different things I want to talk about today. The, the, the first one was a broader conceptual idea that we've discussed before around the combination of politics and philanthropy. I think I see it, you see it in a way that maybe is not the norm, but I think we both believe would be a better way for people to think about it. Second would be, you know, because we're only, what, four weeks out or less from the from the midterms, kind of politics both nationally and, and locally. Um, and then third would be just because you are such a avid consumer of music, books, uh, sports, culture in different ways, what you're reading, what you're hearing, what you're thinking about, that kind Great. of stuff. Cool. All right. So, so, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and, and you know, to me, the most impressive thing you guys do isn't necessarily the specific outcome you have on any given issue, although things like smoking have obviously been transformational. It's that you don't really distinguish between philanthropy and politics, and the way you see it, as I have always understood it, is we want to achieve this goal societally. Whatever gets us to that point is how we're going to do this, whether it's tax deductible or not, whether it's political or not. And frequently, and this is why Mike both served as mayor and ran for president, he believes that if you can leverage the power of government, you can do things that a private, even very wealthy individual can't do. Um, what's the mindset over there, and, and why do you think it's different from most foundations? Well, I, you know, the, the first is it helps to have a living funder. Um, if you have a, a foundation that has existed for 100 or 150 years, they don't really have the ability to use C4 dollars to influence public policy outcome because they don't have C4 dollars. It's all just C3. Um, if you have uh, in Mike Bloomberg a guy who's willing to write a check that isn't necessarily tax deductible, you can have a pot of money that is C3, which is tax deductible money, and a pot of money which is C4, which is not tax deductible, which can be used for advocacy. So having somebody who is around and interested in writing that check is a big piece of the business. If you're the Ford Foundation or Carnegie or one of the legacy foundations, it's much more difficult. And there's no legal way for them to now move money into C4? No, you can move C4 to C3, but you can't, I mean, you can move C3 to C4, but you can't, but, but they wouldn't, maybe I guess from time to time they do that, but I'm not, Honestly, you know, the truth is I don't know what the legal Okay, is. so but let's put putting aside the, the relative tax benefits and, and disadvantages and living funders and not, you guys have a fundamental view, I think, that is, you know, 
we're trying to achieve an outcome and whatever path is necessary to the outcome, public, private, nonprofit, academic, that's how we get there. What's the thinking behind that? Well, the, exactly as you say, I mean, there is a, a set of outcomes that Mike wants to achieve, let's say, around guns or the environment or public health. Um, there are different levers that you can use to achieve those ends. Um, uh, charitable donations is one. Uh, advocacy um, uh, engagement is another. And then straight out political campaigning is the third. So we really are in, in using all three legs of those stools, if you will, um, to, to achieve you know, what we are, are interested in doing. I'll give you an example. So um, you can support an organization, let's say, like Tobacco Free Kids, uh, who is engaged in uh, trying to mi minimize smoking deaths, obviously reduce smoking deaths. You can support their general operating um, with C3 dollars, with, with tax-deductible money. Um, at the same time, you can support them in the advocacy they work uh, to ensure that um, legislators are lobbied on any specific uh, proposal, let's say, to raise taxes uh, yeah. on tobacco products. And then come election time, Mike can write a personal check um, to uh, uh, either support candidates or oppose candidates who are on the right side or the wrong side of any given issue. So there's money to support the organization that's tax deductible. There's money to support their advocacy work, let's say, to help them lobby on behalf of a specific cause. And then come election time, you can leverage the personal contributions either to support or defeat candidates who are on the right or the wrong side of the issue. So of the three, do you think one has a greater efficacy than the others? I think actually working in combination is where you get the efficacy. Um, and my sense, you know, you're, you're always very modest about this, but the work that you do around hunger, you probably see the same thing. I mean, the, the continuum of the different um, tools in the toolbox, the ability to use the different tools in the toolbox, I think is what makes the difference. When Mike first started the foundation, well, I guess the foundation predated technically his, his leaving City Hall, but when it really ramped up after he left um, City Hall, there were very few other people doing what he was doing. They, they, people did not see this kind of um, engagement holistically in the way I've just described it. I think now, with you know, there, there is an enormous amount of very wealthy people in this country who have an interest in any sort of specific public policy outcome. You are seeing more and more donors, more and more foundations who are funded by living donors engage in the way that I've just described. I mean, certainly on the other side of the aisle, the Cokes do a version of this, yeah. right? They, they, they support organizations philanthropically with C3 dollars. They, they engage in advocacy with C4, and then they also write you know, big checks to, to politicians uh, to engage in elections. Um, uh, they're, they're sort of an early sort of pre-runner of this. But I think increasingly you're seeing um, more and more folks, the Arnold Foundation, for instance, John and Laura Arnold, yep. uh, do a version of this. Um, uh, Zuckerberg has has tended to be more resistant on the political side. Gates has been more resistant on the political side. But I think more and more uh, there are more wealthy individuals who kind of see the world in the way that we've just described. And is it because um, they just feel like, hey, I've made all this money. I'm kind of this superhuman being in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I want to you know, change the world in these ways. And the only way for me to do it is to truly impact politics and government. Or um, is, it, is it because they want attention? Like, what, what do you think is driving? Because your sacrifices you have to make to take this approach, right? One is Mike does not get the tax benefits right. of a lot of right. what normal foundations would because right. of all of the C4 work and the, and the 
political work, electoral work is not deductible, right? right? And then two, depending on the issue you're engaged in, there can be significant public blowback, right? So there are people who love what Mike does on guns, and there are people who hate what Mike does on guns, right? Hunger for me is pretty easy, because who hates that? But mobile voting, I take a ton of shit for it, right? Um, what makes people decide, I'm going to lose a tax advantage, I'm going to take the hits publicly on Twitter or whatever it is, um, what drives them to that point? And do you think what, something has changed society to provoke that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think you're right. You, you have to have a lot of money, um, uh, or at least willing to spend a lot of money um, to sort of get your foot in the door in the first place, right? If you're only looking for the, the tax benefit from the tax write-off, you're not going to engage in the C4 advocacy work or the, or the political work. Um, there are certainly some people who have less money than Mike who are willing to um, uh, forego the tax benefit. I think Mike is at a stage in his life where it's just not. Of, it's, it's not. not relevant, it's yeah. not. It's not significantly consequential. Um, you know, the other thing I would say about Mike is, and for people who uh, either are New Yorkers or followed his time in New York as mayor, he doesn't really care about um, public criticism. Um, I mean, he's not immune to it. I mean, but uh, the. Um, uh, the public accolades is not what drives him. And I think on some level, um, he, he would say, if you're not getting any blowback, it means you're not taking any risk, right? If, if all you're doing is supporting uh, cancer research um, and you know, scholarships for kids, which are good things and should be supported, but if right. that's all you're doing, it means that there's an awful lot of challenges in society that you are ignoring. And most challenges in society are far more complicated in terms of their um, uh, their their you know outcomes um, and how you would pursue change than you know writing a check for cancer research. Right. So where do you think you and he have been kind of the most effective in kind of using this sort of multi-tiered philosophy, and where has it not worked as well as you hoped? I mean, I think it. I think we've moved the needle on a lot of issues. I think we've moved the needle on public health in this country, certainly when it comes to tobacco. Um, we've moved the needle on guns in a very significant way. I mean, I think that. There is a whole public conversation about guns in this country that didn't exist uh, prior to Mike's uh, engagement. Um, we've certainly moved the needle on um, trying to retire coal-fired power plants, which was not anything that anybody was really particularly focused on before uh, Mike got engaged at the level uh, that he did engage. So I think we've moved the needle on a lot of things. I think that the continuing challenge is that there are folks on the other sides of these issues who have money and uh, have a perspective that is at odds with ours, who are also very engaged in these fights. Um, and the problems are immense. Uh, you know, the, w global warming is a really big challenge that isn't necessarily going to get solved because Mike Bloomberg spends a hundred million or five hundred million or even a uh, you know a billion dollars. I mean, so some of these challenges are really big, and you're you're trying to affect change. But I think. Um, a lot of these challenges are going to be with us for a long time, regardless of what we do. Right. So um, of the three that you mentioned, to tobacco, I think because it's sort of a largely settled issue, at least in the U.S., you know, it's just it's a huge win. Right. You guys did this. And again, it was the combination, I would argue, of New York City's actual ban that we passed in, what, 02 or something like that. Right. right? Which was very unpopular at the time. It was, but ultimately had a catalytic effect no question. around the rest of the world. Like, yep. Look, what I've always seen in the work that I do is what happens in New York is seen everywhere. Yep. Right? It's the opposite of Vegas. And yep. so good or bad, just every media market in the world sees it. Every government leader in the world sees it. And yep. it just impacts their behavior. Yep. Combined with you guys spending billions of dollars on anti-tobacco advocacy around the world, have this real impact on 
on power plants, it seems like it's something of an economic question more than anything else because, you know, most people would rather not have harmful pollutants emitted into the air, but they're only willing to make so much economic sacrifice in order to do so. As I understand it, you guys are helping to bridge that gap in, in certain ways. Yeah, and also there's a legal piece around you know whether some of these power plants can exist uh, legally, given some of the laws in some of these states. Right. So guns, though, um, tremendous amount of work put in, tremendous amount of money spent. Feels like there's more shootings than ever. Well, the, the, I think the, the crime issue, the, the gun issue is now um, so conflated with the crime issue that it's hard to separate them, right? So I think there are a lot of things that are impacting gun violence in America. The, um, certainly the availability of guns is a big part of it. But we've also um, been going through this pandemic where I think it um, has had an impact on people's behavior in a negative way. So. I think people generally are, you know, kind of societally more violent than they were five years ago because we've just gone through this really traumatic uh, period. And we've also loosened a lot of laws in this country around um, what we can and can't do to punish criminals. And we're engaged in, um, if, I'm, if I'm neutral about it, we're engaged in an experiment to sort of see how that works. And, you know, it, 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 I think someone now not being neutral, I think it has had an impact. On, uh, on crime. But certainly the availability of guns um, has an impact. Uh, I think progress was made in this last session of Congress. You know, finally, there was a bipartisan bill passed um, that dealt with red flag laws and some other issues um, that will help get guns out of the hands of people who are, um, I think, you know, calling them mentally ill is appropriate, so people who are dangerous to themselves and others. Um, but this is a huge challenge, and uh, you know, far be it for me to say that, that we have any, come anywhere close to solving it. So I'm going to give you a magic wand here and say you have every tool at your disposal except confiscation of guns in people's current homes, right? So legal guns, right? Um, what are you doing? I've said, Howard, you got to bring the shooting down rate down by 80%. Um, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like I'm like sort of the last Clinton Democrat in, <laughs> in America. I mean, I, I basically um, thought that a lot of what the Democrats did in the 90s uh, worked. I think that there was probably some overreach with regard to some of the penalties that were promulgated in the uh, crime bill. Um, I think that you know the, the idea that, that people would spend decades in uh, prison for you know essentially nonviolent drug crimes is a, a terrible thing. Um, but I think you know a, a holistic uh, 360 approach that deals with the availability of guns that deals with um, uh, opportunities for kids to engage in um, safe pursuits. You know, there was a, a joke uh, that the, or the, the Republicans turned the sort of um, the crime bill when they attacked it in, in the 90s. They talked about it in midnight basketball. Midnight basketball is a terrible thing. I think midnight basketball is a good thing. Like, I think it's a good idea to have rec centers open until midnight for kids to go and play in a safe environment. So I think there are lots of things that we can do to provide opportunities for kids, whether it's summer jobs, whether it's after school programs. Uh, whether it's midnight basketball, I think is is a big part of it. Um, you know, a, 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 a fully humming economy that provides jobs for or makes jobs available for for lots of people is a big part of it. Um, and I do think that there's that we should probably have some tougher penalties uh, for people who commit crimes than we currently have. I mean, uh, you and I have talked about this yep. uh, on the aforementioned text chain. Um, I think the bail, the quote unquote bail reform laws in New York City. Uh, went too far in the other direction. Um, I don't think you want somebody sent to Rikers 
uh, because they stole something or they stole a backpack and they get killed in Rikers because they can't make bail. That's a disgrace. At the same time, I don't think you want people menacing other people on a daily basis who are not who are not you know uh, subject to bail. So I, I, I think that there's lots of things that we can do. I do not think it is uh, it is it is definitely not one thing. It is a holistic approach, a 360 approach. So speaking of of guns and Rikers and everything else, um, when you were deputy mayor under Mike, crime was low but you had two tools not currently available to the administration. You, you can use stop and frisk. Obviously, you guys decreased it sniffing over time, but it was still constitutional, yep. um, and you didn't have these bail laws in effect. Right. Um, given now the presence of these two things, if Eric Adams calls you, and I think he does call you for advice, well, how do I get the crime right down? How do I get the perception of crime to be better? What do you, what would you tell him? I mean, I do think that bail reform uh, is, a big piece of, uh, is a big piece of this. I, it, it does seem to me that there are people who are um, released without bail who really are dangers uh, to other people, um, and in some cases to themselves, who uh, I think we as a society uh, or as a city, um, you asked about New York City, we would be better off if they were in prison uh, or in jail awaiting their, um, awaiting the, 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 the sort of the court case that they, that they would have coming up. Um, you know, I, I, I am uh, I am still a proponent of broken windows policing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think people should be, you know, hopping the turnstile without paying. Um, I don't think people should be urinating on the street. Um, I do think that there are low-level crimes that uh, should be um, uh, that we should curtail. Uh, I, you know, I think, as you say, stop and frisk was something that we decreased on the way out the door appropriately. Um, but I do think that, that we have gone away from some of the broken windows uh, policing that I think we would be better off having. So when we talk about um, entities sort of effectively combining philanthropy, ideology, and politics, I think Soros has done that pretty well. Very. And, and they have helped elect a lot of ultra-progressive district attorneys around the country who have the opposite view of you on broken windows. Right? Yes. They believe that the vast majority of crime committed is because the criminal is the victim of some sort of institutional discrimination as opposed to uh, a person doing something wrong and paying a price right. for it. Um, so when Mike left City Hall, he kind of took a vow to not mess with his successor. And, and his view was Rudy kind of was pretty good about leaving him alone to do his job. He wanted the same for de Blasio. Now, obviously, Mike was pretty nice to Rudy when Mike was mayor. De Blasio was certainly not nice to Mike. Um, but people like Alvin Bragg have, have one office who I th would argue, and Alvin's a nice guy personally, but are highly problematic, right? Because their their policies are furthering crime as opposed to reducing it. Um, is there a world where you guys sort of get involved? And, and if, if, if not in New York, like is that level of politics, like DA's race is the kind of thing that you think you should be engaged in? Um, I mean, it's it's a fair question. First of all, I do think that, there, that w whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, just objectively, the Soros Foundation deserves a lot of credit uh, for, um, you know, uh, advancing a set of policies and beliefs that it um, is very quite, is quite sincere about, right? I think that a lot of these very progressive DAs would not be in office uh, were it not for uh, Soros uh, and the work that they did. Um, I don't happen to agree with it, but, but credit where credit is due. Um, you know, m when Mike left office, as you say, he took a pledge not to get involved in New York City um, politics. He also um, more or less decided that we weren't going to engage in um, 
elections in cities in general because we do so much philanthropic work with mayors that we didn't want to be picking sort of winners and losers politically in those places. Um, that has been the policy for the last decade. Uh, you know, look, if you ask me personally, if you look at what's happening in cities right now, I could make an argument to you that it might be prudent for us to engage um, in, in, in a more political way, but that's a decision that would be above my pay grade. All right, so Howard, the midterms are just a couple of weeks away. Um, so you have two perspectives here, right? You have one is someone who does engage in politics on behalf of, of Mike Bloomberg, and the second, obviously, is that you are you know an expert in this in 100 different ways. Um, big picture prediction, what happens uh, on Election Day in the House? Well, I should also uh, disclose that I, as, as you know, I'm something of a pessimist, right? So... Um, you've got to take what I uh, say with that in mind. Um, but having said that, I am pessimistic <laughs> uh, about uh, these midterms. Um, I think that uh, there was a moment um, right in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision yeah. around abortion that Democrats were energized uh, and independents um, perceived that uh, these critical rights were under threat. Um, Democrats um, had something of a, of a lift at that moment. Democrats were feeling good about that. I think, unfortunately, a lot of that has dissipated. Um, we are farther away from the Dobbs decision today, obviously, uh, than in, in its immediate aftermath. Um, there are some places where this continues to be a big issue, uh, but I think it is less of an issue today than it was uh, several months ago. And, you know, whether it's the economy or inflation, uh, or as we talked about crime or another issue, we haven't yet talked about immigration. I think that the, um, the set of issues that are top of mind for voters are working against Democrats and are working for Republicans. Right. So um, so gas prices, bigger motivator at this point than, than abortion. I think so. Yeah. Um, now, normally speaking, I mean, the, the incumbent party who controls the White House usually loses, what, dozen, two dozen seats in, in the midterms, right? Right. So in this case, if you combine that with a society that's just generally extremely upset and polarized, combine with inflation, combine with the stock market tanking, combine the fact that we've still been living in a pandemic for the last couple of years, right. why was there ever a world where this wasn't considered a fait accompli that control of Congress would flip? Because uh, people... Um need to feel like they have some agency over what happens right. uh, in politics, uh, especially people who practice politics. And, and I do think that um, there are obviously some individual races that are going to be very close and are going to be determined by the strength of the individual candidates and the amount of money that both sides uh, put in. Um, so, you know, there's every reason to remain engaged. And I think that the Democrats, um, the Senate Democrats in particular, are very much advantaged by the fact that Republicans in a number of these uh, swing states chose um, pretty lousy candidates, right? So right. Uh, in, in Georgia, uh, in Ohio, uh, in Arizona, um, in Pennsylvania, uh, Republicans did not choose good candidates, and Democrats, as a result, have a better chance to, to win those uh, seats than they would otherwise. Um, so, you know, to, to folks who are listening who... Um, 
who uh, uh, would listen with despair, uh, I do think that there's every reason to continue to, to have some hope, especially for some of these individual races, and the Senate is obviously uh, closer than the House. So if you're Mitch McConnell, right, we've heard him, and I've obviously no one should have any sympathy for Mitch McConnell anyway, but um, we've heard him start to complain about the quality of the candidates that he has to field. What's the point where you say, fuck it, I've, I've had it, you know, Trump and I already don't get along publicly, um, we are not going to continue nominating far-right-wing Trumpers who then lose to the Democrat in statewide races? Uh, well, I would say two things. One, it's not so easy because the, these people, uh, these far-right candidates, seem to reflect the preference of a lot of Republican primary voters. Yep. So it's not like Mitch McConnell can sort of wave his wand and go back into the back room and decide who the candidate is going to be, right? It, it's not 1930 where that's how yep. Senate candidates are chosen. They they all come out of these primaries, and um, they all are able to engender grassroots uh, support. And, and unfortunately, a lot of these uh, candidates are represent the you know a significant uh, wing of the Republican Party whether it's a plurality or a majority in many cases it's a plurality um, it's a it's a reflection of voters right it's not just some the individual hand right though although one at least I'm not aware of that right now he could say because they know who at the outset who's running and, and how they have a handicap it Mehmet Oz is going to lose us the race in Pennsylvania let's kill him at the very beginning of the Republican right. primary and yeah. not let him get to that point right. Um, he could have. Look, I, I think that history will record that um, Mitch McConnell was in a very unique position um, after January 6th uh, to lead a successful conviction of Donald Trump in the Senate, and he chose not to. And my guess is that that will not sit well with him 10 or 15 years from now. Uh, he is. You think uh, he has a conscience? I do, yeah. Uh, and I think you know what. Sometimes people discover consciences as they as they get older. <laughs> um, uh, and no, but maybe more importantly, history is going to look back at that as a hinge moment where this was somebody who could have been a hero of the republic and made a decision not to be, which I think was a terrible, terrible decision. Right. So Liz Cheney. I mean, I, I believe that she believes what she's saying about January six, but I think she's also really fucking smart and has made a political calculation that long term being on the right side of history will not only benefit her legacy, but also ultimately, I think, position her for bigger office than being you know, a, a member of the House. Um, why do you think she concluded one way and everyone else the other? Is she just unique, or is she seeing something everyone else doesn't see? Like well, what? She's definitely unique. I mean, there, I think she's definitionally unique because there were very few people uh, like her. Uh, a very small handful uh, voted for the impeachment in the House. Um, I'm not sure that, that you know, I, I don't know. I mean, at, at any moment, it seems to me, there are a small handful of people who uh, try to take the long view of history and try to do the right thing regardless of, uh, of the, um, the circumstances or, 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 what, or what could happen as a result. I, I'm not sure that Liz Cheney is making a political calculation. If she is, it's not necessarily the political calculation I would make right. if I were her. I mean, I guess I'd like to think that she actually is doing what her conscience dic dictates. Yeah, but if you thought that, then you wouldn't be you. Um, <laughs> so. All right, so let's let's quickly go through and, and note that you're a pessimist, the, the different major Senate races, and you, you tell me what you think the outcome is. All right, Pennsylvania, you got Fetterman and Oz. I think it's going to come down to the debate, and people are going to see whether they think um, Fetterman can perform the job effectively at that debate. And do you think he will? I don't know. 
Uh, Georgia, Warnock and Walker. Boy, uh, I watched this. I'm, I'm so much you of a junkie. It? Yeah, I did. I watched this debate Friday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, and um, sadly, you know, Walker exceeded extremely low expectations. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess I would like to have enough um, enough hope for the future of America that, that um, Walker does not get elected. Ohio. I Murphy think, and Vance, is that what it is? No. No, uh, Ryan and Vance. Ryan and Vance. Sorry. I think uh, the underlying demographics in Ohio are very difficult for a Democrat. So Vance wins. And, but, but the Peter Thiel kind of Senate consortium doesn't happen because Masters loses to Kelly in Arizona? I think that's correct. So, because in theory, you at the Bloomberg World could have done what Thiel did, which to me at least initially seemed pretty fucking brilliant, which is you're living in a world of effectively always, always almost a 50-50 Senate because of the world we're in. And if you can control two members effectively, just like Joe Manchin controlled the entire agenda for the last two years, um, you could do the same thing. Do you agree with Teal? And if so, why don't you do it? Well, I think the difference is that Teal identified the farthest right candidates in those primaries and supported them. And there is a, um, a plurality for the farthest right candidate in a Republican primary yeah. at this moment. Yeah. Mike Bloomberg is not going to support the farthest left candidate in a Democratic primary. And it's not clear to me how many places there is a plurality for the centrist candidate, right? I mean, Connor Lamb was, was a centrist candidate running in Pennsylvania. I think he got less than 10%. And I'm not sure, he had a fair amount of money. I'm not sure money was gonna make the difference against John Fetterman. So some of it I think has to do with the fact that, that Teal has identified um, a, a segment of the electorate that actually represents a plurality, if not a majority. Uh, you know, Mike has got um, is such a centrist that it's not clear to me that there is a majoritarian view in Democratic uh, primary for uh, you know for Bloombergian politics. So if if you're a, a centrist Republican, if you're Mitt Romney, you're Mike Bloomberg, right? You're Nancy Pelosi, whatever it is. Um, when the, when does the moment hit where you say, you know what? We got to split up our party because I want these DSA nuts out of my primary because they're destroying my ability to win general elections or to, to legislate. And the same thing on the Republican side. Um, I, mean, I think, the, in my view, the answer to that is is open primaries and and uh, ranked choice voting. But yeah, but those are so. I mean, you and I have worked on a lot of this stuff, right? And at least in my experience, and you and I have helped pass ranked choice voting and open primary referendums around the country. It feels relatively incremental and marginal it is, it at, is at the difference, it is, right? It is incremental. Um, so uh, we know how hard it is to create a third party because, again, you and I have looked at that, played around with it quite a bit over the years. And we have. I'm still fucking around with the forward party stuff because I just generally believe in blowing up the system. But um, it would seem to me that it is much easier in government politics to break something or kill something than it is to create something, Right. So maybe actively splitting the two main parties, which will feel like it's a loss because you're shedding support and numbers and everything else, but ultimately gives you a lane where you can be effective. I, is, think, what, I, I think what actually happens is what has happened to the Republican Party, which is the Republican Party that Donald Trump confronted in 2016 was essentially brain dead, right? I mean, it, it, it's elected officials and elites were promulgating a set of policies that no longer spoke to um, the voters of that party. Donald Trump figured that out rather brilliantly. Um, obviously, I, I despise what Donald Trump stands for, but give the credit here. Um, he recognized that there was a huge vacuum that, that people uh, that that 
Republican uh, politicians were not speaking to the, the actual concerns and desires of Republican primary voters, and he's changed the party, right? The, the Republican Party of today does not look like the pre-Republican Party of Donald Trump. So, you know, that's kind of actually how parties change in America. I don't think it's necessarily that they split up. It's that somebody captures the party and moves it in a different direction. Right, but it's moved now. So both the Sanders, AOC, Warren on the left, and, and Trump on the right in these directions that just guarantee complete dysfunction. Um, generally, so so. But look, look at Utah, right? So you have Mike Lee, who is now apparently begging for Mitt Romney's support. Right, Romney would be sort of the prototypical centrist-ish Republican in today's world. Right. right? Um, a guy like Evan McMullen, although you and I have disagreed about this over the last couple of months, is leasing the ball game, right? Yeah. Some people would yep. say he could win, some people would say he can't, or yeah. our little yeah. text group would say he can't. But um, based on yesterday's stuff, but um, but o overall, isn't that sort of a path, which is maybe you start supporting these kind of independent candidates that are not Democrats in red states or, or Republicans in blue states? Maybe, um, or maybe in a in a state like New York, instead of the Republicans nominating Lee Zeldin. They nominate somebody like more like George Pataki, and the Republican actually has a chance. Right. So, so let's pivot. We have a governor's race here, and there's, as always happens in the last few weeks, they're trying to make it sound interesting. There's polling that sort right. of suggests that Lee Zelton is, is within striking distance. I think you and I would both argue that that's a not only true, but that Hochul's probably up somewhere in the high single to low double digits, and that's probably where it will land. Um, do you see a world where Hochul doesn't win or, or wins by less than five points? Um, I think that if Lee Zeldin was George Pataki, uh, she would be in incredible trouble. Um, I think that given that Lee Zeldin is Lee Zeldin, you know, a you know, Trump-loving, insurrection-supporting, yeah. far-right Republican, chances are he does not win. I actually think he has a better chance uh, than you do. You think he comes in, like, in the sense of, of coming within single digits or yes. actually winning? Coming within single. I mean, the reason why I'm a little hesitant, and it's, you know, oftentimes we sort of had to take a very small sample size of our own experience and apply it to everything. But if you remember 2010, uh, Dan Donovan, who at the time was the Staten Island attorney, ran for state AG. Uh, we supported him. Right. He, Mike likes him. And we went into Election Day in Siena, I think tied, or we were at least within the margin of error. And we lost by call it eight or nine or something right. like that. And that's because you know, they, there's no Republican turnout operation at right. all in the state, right? right? So you almost have to be up by four or five to combat all of the ground game that you're going to see on the other side. I don't see how that's changed in the past 12 years to benefit Zeldin. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And, and certainly 2010 was a pretty terrible year for Democrats. So it would, would have been a year that a Republican would have done well. Right. I think that's why we're at least in the game at all. At right. Point. Yeah. I, I just think that the issue set right now that, that New Yorkers are confronting so benefits Republicans. I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, thinking about what do voters think about when they walk into the booth? What are the issues that are animating lots of voters uh, in this state? And I think immigration, uh, crime, inflation, and the economy, these are not working in Kathy Hochul's favor. They're just right. not. Right. Now, she's trying to make it about abortion uh, and democracy, uh, which obviously do work in her favor. You know, question is whether or not those things are more important than, um, you know, the price of gas and the fact that you're worried about getting mugged. Right. So turning local, um, you and I are a little biased in favor of Eric Adams in the sense that he's A, not Bill de Blasio, and B, um, at least isn't smart enough to keep 
Team Bloomberg inside the tent pissing out, right? So if whether they're taking your advice, actually, I don't know, but they're at least soliciting it so we feel like we're part of something, which is, which is smart on their part. With that in mind, how do you think he's actually doing? Um, I think that he uh, had a very, very strong first few months. I think that the energy and enthusiasm uh, that he conveyed uh, upon taking the job was really important. Uh, it sent an important signal to New Yorkers that New York was back, mm -hmm. that the sort of the lockdown was over and it yep. was okay to go out and enjoy ourselves. Um, and I think it was a nice contrast with, with de Blasio, who didn't seem like he liked the job um, and couldn't be bothered to sort of go out and, and, and uh, celebrate any part of New York. Or work. Or work. <laughs> or work. Um, I think as we sort of, as we transition now from the beginning of the term to, you know, the fall, um, I think that there are a set of challenges and headwinds that he's confronting. I mean, this, um, this migrant uh, crisis, uh, certainly not of his creation, no. um, it is a, a federal problem and it's a problem that is being exacerbated by the decisions of uh, governor, uh, governor in Texas, Governor Florida and Mayor in uh, Texas to, to send migrants our way. But unfortunately, when you're the mayor, as you know, you've got to deal with this stuff. Right. And it's a challenge. What, what would, if, if, if you were, if this was in the Bloomberg administration and busloads of migrants were showing up, what would you do? You know, I don't know. Um, it's, a, it's actually a really hard thing because we have this law in the books in New York that we are obligated to provide shelter to people who don't have it. So in theory, you could wake up this morning in Caracas and be in New York in the afternoon. Obviously, it takes a lot longer to get here, but you know, you you don't have to be in New York very long uh, in order to um, uh, to have a right to shelter. And you know th that that is going to cost New York a lot of money and uh, strain resources. And you know, the, to building tent cities in or in Orchard Beach or or uh, Randall's Island. These are not places where you typically right. would imagine lots of migrants. So th these are absolutely short-term logistical challenges, say the least. But it seems to be big picture. From an economic standpoint, we need a lot more immigration, right? So, so Trump pretty much turned off the spigot, and then COVID obviously doubled down on that. And you have an incredibly tight labor market. You have lots of jobs going unfilled because Americans just don't want to do them, right? You have a economy that's aging out, so people are living longer and needing more and more Social Security and Medicare and not enough younger people paying into those trusts to afford it. I mean, overall, doesn't New York City need more immigrants? So uh, the demise of uh, or the, the some of the challenges that New York uh, faced in the 70s and the 80s was certainly due to um, not having enough people living here and not having enough immigrants coming here, right? So we, we have benefited as a city enormously in the last 10, 15, 20 years from having more immigrants. And, you know, the, the immigrants who come here that I see certainly ha come here to really work hard, Yeah. right? I mean, you, you, you are not coming to New York in order to sit around and, you know, uh, and, and not work. You are here to really sort of, you know, uh, work as hard as you can, and 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 you know our parents, grandparents, great grandparents were like that. I think the current generation of immigrants is like that. I think the challenge is that um, as a country, you kind of want to be in control of it, right? Right now, it feels relatively uncontrolled. Yeah. Um, you show up on the southern border and you um, sort of declare that you want amnesty, and then 
uh, you you are uh, basically free to go until your case is adjudicated. Sometimes that can right. take months and months and months. So uh, yes, we need immigrants. Um, yes, the city needs immigrants, but I think we want to make sure that 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 the process is a bit more controlled. Than Fine, it but if you're Biden, then why not say, look, you know what? I can't stop the flow at the border anyway. I'm getting killed for it. And yet at the same time, my actual economy needs this. Why not just say, you know what? Great. We're, we're lifting, we're increasing the cap by five million. And so all of you people coming in now, um, you can potentially do so legally. And at the same time, you know, if you're not coming through the process legally, we're going to be much harder on you. Right. I mean, th there has to be some sort of um, solution to this that is uh, different than the status quo. There's no question about that. You know, politically, this is a very tough issue, right? You and I are on the podcast in New York on the Lower East Side, uh, and we see the value of immigrants. There are lots of people in this country who don't, and they vote, right? So I think what you are seeing in Europe, for instance, is a real backlash to the perception that immigration has essentially accelerated far beyond the interests and the desires of people in those countries right. uh, to have lots of immigrants. Well, there's also, I think, maybe a distinction doesn't get made between refugees and immigrants, right? right? So there are refugees like people from Syria who are now kind of all throughout you know, Greece and then Germany and now Northern Europe right. that are helping fuel the rise of political extremism yes. there, or refugees from Venezuela who are right. coming to the U.S. Um, I think you could possibly deal with these two different things two different ways. So immigration, you could argue, this is an economic question. It's a, it's a labor question of supply and demand. Right. What do we think we need? Let's set the levels accordingly. And obviously, the Bloomberg worlds of us would say the H-1B visa should be sort of the top priority because you want to bring in as much high-skilled labor as possible, right? right? And then there's people who are refugees. Hugo and I were debating this the other day on the podcast, which is like we were thinking about different ways to sort of counter the broader trends towards political extremism. Um, and... Like, what if you dealt with it differently? What if you had an island, not Greenland, but some island, and you said, okay, anyone who's a refugee that legitimately has a claim to this, we're going to put you here. And that way you're not going to become a burden to the German economy, the, the Netherlands, the U.S., whatever it is, but we are going to help you. Um, I mean, do you think you could look at other ideas like that? But where would the magic island be? Um, somewhere in the Pacific in a lovely area. <laughs> well, well, but actually, let me give you, I'll, I'll give you the corollary, which is, you know, you're obviously a strong Israel supporter like me. If you go back to 1948 and said, look, guys, you can have two places. You can have where you are with all of the conflict, and we'll show it to you, that's going to unfold over the next 80 years or perpetuity. Or you can have this beautiful island that no one's going to give you a hard time about, no one else is claiming, and all of the things that allowed Israel to become a successful country, you would still have all of those, right? So you would still likely succeed, but without the conflict and, and, and the constant hatred. Most Jews, I think, would say, no, 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 you have to be in Israel. Right. What would you say? And if you paint the island, why couldn't you do that for refugees? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how practical it is to, to build an island that would be, <laughs> that would be for refugees. But, but I do think you are pointing out the reality that there are there are a set of there are a set of policy challenges, economic challenges, and then political challenges around mass immigration and um, mass refugee uh, arrival. Yeah, and I think in Europe, what we are seeing is the combination of high inflation, large numbers of refugees, uh, and increasing crime tends to lead towards uh, the success at the ballot box of of right-wing or even far-right-wing parties and candidates. Right. And as somebody who is very disturbed by that, uh, I'd like to think that there is a way that we can address some of these underlying challenges 
so that um, lots of voters don't feel like they need to vote for the far right candidate to solve them. Right. And it's, it's, right. The, the theory there was if you can reduce some of the factors that lead to extremism, like a sudden influx of refugees that all of a sudden feel like a legitimate strain on the system, yes. um, that may help. All right, we're going to do what Hugo calls a hard pivot here uh, and, and leave politics. Um, you are one of the most avid consumers I know of music, of I want to I want to jump yeah. in here, not just avid consumer. I think if there was a ranking of like Substack subscribers, like the Americans the with the most. Yeah, he's number one. He's number one. Yeah, you're the number one Substack You send me shit from places I've never heard of by <laughs> obscure freelancers uh, toiling in, in anonymity. Okay, so let's start with um, five bands that you're listening to that our listeners might not know that you would recommend, or three, whatever number you want. I, I, I sort of feel like that that the... the, the the version of me that existed 10 years ago would have like a great set of answers to those questions or that question. I'm like, I'm beginning to age out of this. I mean- Do you still go to shows? I do. So but, what was the last couple of shows you went to? Uh, my wife and I went to see Harry Styles. I think that's somebody that people have heard of. Yep. Wow, major credibility check there on Howard Wilson. <laughs> um, my wife and I went to see Wilco when they um, on their last tour. Uh, Extremely cutting edge. Yeah, that, the, so the, you, so it was nineteen ninety four. Watch your message. Right, this is sure. what this is this is what happened. So Hugo makes fun of me. Of course, in fairness, Hugo's been making fun of me for thirty years, um, even when they were even when the bands that I uh, liked were considerably hipper. Well, I was gonna I was gonna um, suggest a a, a fail safe method here where. We would just have um, Howard read the last ten bands that he listened to on Spotify. Just read them into the into, okay. into the, uh, here, into the so podcast. Here, so here's the problem with that. A lot of the driving that I do these days is with my kids. Oh, you're gonna use that. <laughs> and and we're basically listening to music that they like. Although I have to say, maybe this is what happens as your kids get to be a little older. So you know, when they're younger, you listen to the music they like. Um, now she's beginning to like some of the music that I like. Really? And so she. Wait, so wait, what is what is actually connecting? Uh, so she's become then white rope. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's become a big fan of the Smiths. Oh yeah. So we're gonna go that's see just because you're like a melancholy seventeen. Maybe we have a melancholy right? no, family. No, Smiths though are, are Tears for Fears too. Have you noticed that? Totally. I never liked Tears for Fears, but my kids like it, and I like listening to it with right. them. Although, and, like, and to get yeah. back to the start, of the, everybody wants to save the world, right? Yeah. I mean, but so I'm gonna take my daughter to see Marcy. Marcy so wants to rule the world. Wait, rule isn't he world, like right. it? Now, yeah. All right. Keep going. He's what? I mean, this, Morris, he's a just says the most repulsive stuff, right? I mean, he's I, like Herschel Walker. I, he's, <laughs> that would be a good matchup, Morrissey versus Herschel Walker. <clears throat> we're gonna go see. The, the we're wrong. gonna go see Morrissey, and hopefully, he won't say anything crazy. Um, okay, uh, as Hugo mentioned, you read more Substacks, newspapers, magazines than anyone I know. Who are some writers that you think are low under the radar screen that that you find impressive? So I want to I want to do a shout out, uh, Bradley. You and I. Uh, we have um, underwritten a, a book prize in, yes, book in prize. New York City uh, for the best book about New York. Um, and there are two books that I've read this year uh, so far that I really like a lot that mm -hmm. I would want to shout out. Um, the first is a nonfiction book. It's a book of history. Uh, it's called The Sewing Girl's Tale, A Story of Crime and Consequences in Revolutionary America. It's about um, the case of a young woman who accuses... Um, uh, a gentleman uh, of rape. Uh, in what year? And when I say gentleman, I don't. I mean that literally, not figuratively. Yeah. Because uh, he was a pretty bad guy. Um, it is right after the revolution. 
Um, and society is in upheaval and, and the social constructs are changing. And um, it's a wonderful look at how um, the legal system in that period dealt with an accusation like this. So it looks at uh, gender and law and also social hierarchy in a really interesting way and says something really interesting about sort of New York at that moment. But was justice delivered or denied? Uh, I, I would encourage... Wow, that's a spoiler if ever I heard yeah, it. I was going to say... It's nonfiction. I, you got to read if, it. If it happened if hundreds of look, years look, ago. Look, if Howard has read it, enjoy it. You know that justice was denied. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think pe people should read it. It's really okay. well written. It's a really good book of history. The other is a, a book of fiction called Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta. Oh, yeah. We have that here at the bookstore. Have you been reading it? Have you read I it? I have it. It's on my list. Is it good? It is good. It, the, the language is amazing. I mean, it's just incredibly well written. What, what's the story? What's the era? What is it? So it's a, um, uh, a young man is caught up in a, in a crime that he didn't really commit, is sentenced to prison, um, transitions, essentially, uh, and comes out... Uh, um, uh, and very different than he went in, um, and it's the it's the the sort of this this story of the reemergence into society after the uh, after the sentence is over. How does it go? Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> Wouldn't be much of a book without it. So right now, if you had to nominate two books for this year's Gotham Book Prize, those, two? those are your two nominees. Be, yeah, do you, what are your two nominees? Uh, so I, there's a, you know, I'm generally fiction, right? So I would say uh, there's a book called Olga Dies Dreaming that was a uh, about a family in Brooklyn involved politics and all this stuff. But it was really well done um, uh, that I would put in there. And then there was a novel called To Paradise, um, that came out at the very beginning of this year that is a very complicated and highly structured novel, um, but does place, took place in New York City between kind of now, basically from 200 years ago until like 100 years in the future. And I would say it was so ambitious that it is worth uh, worth consideration. But I think this is a year where we're going to have lots and lots of good choices. Um, but last year, it felt like we were a little more constrained. Um, this year, I think we're going to have, you know, a hard time choosing in the sense that there's going to be too, too many good ones to pick from. Um, sports, you're the Yankees. Yeah. We um, can't really even talk about this because the deciding game is tonight. Right. So, uh, it, I mean, it, we, we were chatting about it earlier, me and Howard, and, and I mean, the entire, everything about the Yankees hinges on tonight. How do, you, how do you feel about tonight, knowing that the outcome will be determined before anyone hears this? Um, he's, he's pessimistic. <laughs> I am pessimistic. Really? That's surprising. <laughs> I am pessimistic. Um, the, the Knicks this season? I'm optimistic. Why? Ooh. Uh, Ooh. Because I think Brunson is going to be a real difference maker. I think he is going to be the point guard of Hugo Lindgren's dreams. <laughs> this, guy, this guy is going to be the best point guard of our adult lives as a Nick. When was the last lives. time we had a good one? Uh... Well, Walt Clyde Frazier. Yeah. I mean, you had Jason Kidd, but he was too old. You He's had... too old. We have not had a good point guard in their prime. Mark Jackson? Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson. That was the last one. That's right? the last one. Chris Childs had moments. Not many. Not enough. Yeah. So, all right. So you feel good about the Knicks. I the do. Giants, I think you feel pretty good about, right? I do. Keep winning. Yeah. Uh, the Yankees, you're pessimistic, but nonetheless, you're, you know, you're, you're in the playoffs, and yeah. get a win tonight gets you into the ALCS. Absolutely, uh, and then you'll lose to the Astros. As and my always. my son has become started to become a big Rangers fan, a big hockey fan, uh, which was not something that I was a fan of as a kid, and it's not really anything that I introduced him to. He sort of found it on his own, and so 
We're going to go to a bunch of Rangers games. Yeah, this it's year. fun. So, right. I'm not a hockey fan either, but um, on Saturday night, so the company that we bought with the SPAC play up um, is a sponsor of the Devils. And so the, the team from Australia from Playup were in town this past weekend, so we all went up to the Devils' home opener on Saturday night, and I brought the kids. And it's fun. The atmosphere you know? is fun. It was fun. We had yeah. a good time. Yeah, It feels a little bit like 1950 when you go to the games, but it's it, the, the, the people are definitely into it. Yeah, good. All right, uh, one final prediction. Does Joe Biden run or not run for re-election in 2024? Runs. Here we go. Howard Wilson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 